Hello, everybody, and happy holidays from the American Cancer Society's research department. I'm Joe Cotter. This is the Theory Lab podcast. My friend, Dr. Susanna Greer, is here. Happy holidays, Susanna. Happy holidays, Joe. Happy Happy holidays. holidays. (laughs) So it's not every day you get to speak with the Cancer Center director. Susanna, this was really pretty cool. What a treat. Dr. Joanne Sweezy was our guest. She's the inaugural holder of the Nancy C. and Craig M. Berg Endowed Chair for the director of the University of Arizona Cancer Center. So obviously, position of immense responsibility and importance. Um, NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers, and you'll get into this and she'll get into this. They do so much for the community and for cancer patients. Um, And real quick, Susanna, before I hand it over to you. So if you look across the country at all of the NCI designated comprehensive cancer center directors, it's pretty neat. About 70% of them are current or former ACS grantees. Um, And Dr. Sweezy is one of them. She's a former ACS grantee. And she talked about how the ACS grant jump-started her career, which was really neat to hear. I really enjoyed this, Susanna. Yeah, Dr. Sweezy is, she was so approachable and so much fun to talk to. I was really interested to talk to her because, uh, first of all, there are only a handful of women who are cancer center directors. She's one of them. Can you can you imagine starting a job of this importance in the middle of a pandemic? She started her job in June. And you're, you're right. Cancer centers play such critical roles for their communities in understanding how to help the population of that community prevent cancer, how to provide clinical services to cancer patients, and how to perform cutting-edge research that's going to bring us closer to cancer cures and to new therapies. And doing all of that in the midst of a pandemic, I, I just was so excited to talk to her. And what she shared is just a lovely account of the ways that she has set goals for the Cancer Center, how those goals have been shifted during the pandemic and just her really lovely and positive perspective on despite the fact that we are in a tough place all the good things that are coming in cancer care and cancer research from our understanding of the pandemic and and of covid and then she goes on to talk to us in a little more personal approach about her career how fortunate she was to be mentored by one of the absolute greats in science, Dr. Evelyn Witkin, and share some really wonderful advice for all scientists, but especially women who look to accomplished scientists like Dr. Sweezy and say, you know, how can I do this? How have you done it? And how can I do it? So I loved our conversation and I I think our listeners will as well. Hello, Joanne. It's so nice to talk to you today. How are you? I'm well, and it's wonderful to talk with you today. All right. Well, if you're ready, we're going to dive in. I'm so excited to learn more about what this year has been like for you and what you have planned. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. Well, let's let's help people understand my excitement. And that that is because you have been recently appointed as 
director of the University of Arizona Cancer Center. So I think that occurred in June of 2020. So first, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's It really is. It's a real privilege to be the director of this wonderful cancer center. I can only imagine, and we're going to talk about it more, what moving into a position like this has been like during a unprecedented time uh, in our history due to the pandemic. But let's, let's, I guess, let's level set first. Maybe let's help people understand what cancer centers do. So cancer centers, are, they play just these absolutely key roles in communities and play roles in cancer prevention, have clinical service responsibilities, and conduct research. And so as director, this is a huge job because you're going to set the vision and the priorities for the cancer center at the University of Arizona. So maybe correct me if any of that was wrong or clarify, please. And then we'd love to know what what were your immediate goals for the Cancer Center when you took the position? So you're absolutely correct about cancer centers and especially NCI or National Cancer Institute designated cancer centers. They play incredibly critical roles and their job really is to serve the communities they're in. And, the, and, and in our case, the University of Arizona Cancer Center is the only and National Cancer Institute designated cancer center or NCI designated cancer center headquartered in the state of Arizona. So we are dedicated to the entire state and the patients in the state. And so when I stepped up to the plate and took the helm of this incredible cancer center, my personal focus was and still is for Arizonans to reap the full benefit of an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center dedicated to their health and well-being. Absolutely, that's my goal, and that's the goal of the leadership of this cancer center and every single member of the center, as well as the University of Arizona. Uh, and so, in addition, it's really, it's, it's to build, it, it, it goes back to the first thing that I said, but it's really to build upon the universal commitment of the faculty and staff at this cancer center and at the institution to serve communities of all types. We have a lot of disparities in the state. We have a lot of rural communities, uh, and we really are interested in promoting bi-directional communication, understanding the needs of cancer patients, cancer survivors in communities and then responding to those needs with clinical care and, and, and research. I love that. I loved what you shared. And I think one of the nicest thing you said was that you were really there to help your community, which in this case, you're exactly right. And I appreciate you reminding me of that, that your, your community is huge. It's, it's all of the citizens of Arizona and, and all of those citizens and all the different ways that they're impacted by cancer. So your goal is to help all of those citizens to reap this huge benefit of having an NCI designated cancer center in Arizona. And I also appreciated what you shared about your goal of there being bi-directional communication. So you want to tell all the wonderful people of Arizona what you have to offer, and importantly, you want to hear from them what they need. So with that, I I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about 2020 itself, because this has been a really challenging year for the entirety of that cancer community. So 
help us to understand with all those goals you had in mind, how did the pandemic impact the Cancer Center and, and the ways that you could serve the citizens of Arizona, what you were hearing from them that they needed, and maybe help us level set for what we call the cancer community, which would be cancer patients and the folks that take care of them, their caregivers, um, survivors, and, and cancer researchers. So it's a big question, but how, how do you nest those goals within the reality of 2020? I'm just incredibly impressed and touched by the camaraderie of everyone I work with to both care for cancer patients, keep others safe by partnering with the health system, and working together to figure out how to sustain, re how to sustain research. Uh, lots of collaborations are going on through Zoom. It's hard to not walk down the hall and talk with a colleague, but people have really stepped up to the plate, juggling uh, family-related issues and COVID while retaining the driving commitment to find the next cure for cancer. So we figured out early on how to tackle the problem. Oh, that's fantastic. You're right. I don't think there's anyone in the cancer community who hasn't juggled this year. <laughs> and I, I echo your thoughts. I've, I've been so incredibly impressed as to how we've all, I think, kind of upped our game in doing the best we can with this situation that we are in to do exactly what you said, find a cure for cancer. So you, you listed a few, but I'm really interested to know, and it may be too soon to ask, but it seems like out of every challenging situation, the reward can be new insights. So I'm wondering, has this situation that you unexpectedly found yourself in, confronting a pandemic as a new director, have have there been new opportunities for the Cancer Center or maybe even silver linings to do 2020 that were totally unexpected? Absolutely. Uh Scientists are just incredibly creative. And first of all, I can't emphasize enough the camaraderie I've experienced with the leadership and the members of the Cancer Center here. And it's, I think it's, you know, it's here to begin with, but this pandemic has just brought it out even more. I'm so lucky. Uh, there have been extraordinary results of scientists getting together over Zoom. I go to symposia in Europe. Uh, they, Europeans and, and people from Asia come to symposia in the United States and we're working together remotely over Zoom. It's, it's just amazing. The, the other thing is, you know, the, the vaccine, getting together for the vaccine and studying COVID, all of the science from that is going to benefit cancer research and scientists are collaborating, basic researchers all the way through clinical researchers. So reduced distance values to collaboration. You know, we can do a lot remotely and, th and that's amazing. Here in Arizona, the University of Arizona already had strengths in telemedicine. And so we were able to deploy this effectively and we could reach a lot more patients this way and, and treat a lot more patients. And so, so that's been amazing. And all of this is very cost effective. Co I should say cost efficient. It's very cost efficient. Joanne, I, I really appreciate one of the things that you shared, which was a silver lining maybe of the pandemic has helped us to understand that distance in the scientific and in the clinical arena doesn't have to drive all of our decision making. You shared that we've gotten better at telemedicine, we've decreased cost and scientists and researchers have gotten better at collaborating, even if we aren't in the same space. And 
you mentioned like attending symposia. So how help our listeners who aren't scientists understand what's a symposia? What would you do there? And why are they so important for the scientific enterprise? Right. So symposia are, are uh, many conferences where people present their latest work. And uh, it, it's great because the latest work isn't published. So we depend on reading journals and things that are published. But now we can really get these results off the press, hot off the press, right as they're being generated and discuss them and, and talk with each other about the next set, about the next step. So it's it's really encouraging a collaborative environment. That's fantastic. And one of the areas that you mentioned, which I want to follow up on, is you mentioned that many researchers, because of the necessity of the pandemic, pivoted a bit and began to focus their research in COVID. And there have been already outcomes and implications for cancer patients and treatments and therapies. Could you Maybe just share your uh, your thoughts on perhaps short-term and long-term benefits for cancer patients of the research that's happening right now in the COVID arena. Sure, I'd be glad to. So I, th- I think first we're learning about uh, responses. We're learning about immune responses. We're learning a lot about immune responses. And that's really important uh, given uh, the immunotherapy uh, Advent, I should say, it's we're well into it, where patients, cancer patients are now being treated with immunotherapy. But as we know, not all of them respond. And so we're learning a lot about the immune system of individuals, and we're going to be able to take what we're learning and use it to generate uh, better immunotherapies for cancer patients. You know, also with the vaccine, uh, what that really, that was years of work early work in basic science, but put all together by the people who are now manufacturing the vaccine, you know, learning how to deliver uh, things to cells using nanoparticles. It's, it's really amazing. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Learning how to stabilize nucleic acids is going to have incredible benefits for cancer patients in the future. So all of this research is, is really going to benefit cancer patients. You know, one of the things that you said just really resonated with me, and that is that while it seems on the surface these vaccines for COVID have happened so quickly, they are entirely based upon decades of fundamental science. And we never knew 20 years ago that research and understanding of messenger RNA and how different genes are turned on and turned off and why and when would would help us to hopefully bring a pandemic to its end. And I think it exactly parallels what you just shared, which is sometimes we never know where basic science will lead us, but we very much know that we have some huge challenges in the cancer space. And you brought up an outstanding example of the immune system where we have these great immunotherapies, and they, when they work, they are a home run, but they don't work in enough patients and in enough cancers. And so just helping us to understand more about the immune system will inevitably help us to better implement immunotherapies for more patients and more cancers. So that's a really outstanding silver lining, I think, of, of what can be a little bit of a worrisome switch for cancer patients and the cancer community of of researchers having having to um, pivot and focus a bit on COVID at this really uh, intense time. 
No, I, I agree. I, I, I think that cancer, cancer patients will benefit from this research uh, in the near and long term. I, I really do. All right. This kind of blows me away. I, I am almost positive that there are only 24 hours in your day, just like the rest of us. So you're going to have to help us understand, because in addition to directing this incredibly robust cancer center and its programs, you also run a research program and a laboratory of your own and, and have for years and years. So I think my audience would really love to hear a little bit more about that. Um, so your lab has been focused on the regulation of DNA repair. So I think for us to appreciate really what you do and more importantly, why you do it, maybe just take us a few steps back and help us to understand what is DNA damage, um, maybe how it occurs and critically when DNA damage occurs, why is repairing that damage so important, especially since this is a cancer podcast, when we think about blocking healthy cells from becoming cancer cells? Right. So so our DNA is damaged uh, just by us breathing oxygen. So the bases in our DNA uh, become damaged by oxygen. And that's a huge problem. Actually, 50,000 DNA bases per cell per day can be damaged by oxygen. Uh, going out into the sunlight, UV light damages our DNA. And so we have several different DNA repair systems that can recognize that damage. They find it and then they remove that damage. If the damage isn't removed, it can become a mutation lead to something called genomic instability where chromosomes become rearranged and that is associated with development of cancer. So that's the problem. So that's why we need robust DNA repair. Now there's a flip side to it and that is that chemotherapies and radiotherapy for cancer patients uh, damage DNA and that's how they kill tumor cells. So if DNA repair is extremely robust in a tumor, the problem becomes it can become resistant to the therapy, to cancer therapy. So we really need to understand how DNA repair works and how it's regulated. What an interesting seesaw that you have to think about, which is that damage is inevitable. You, <laughs> that's a pretty that's startling right. statistic, right? 50,000 DNA bases per cell per day could be damaged and necessitate repair. So you, you've got to have it. You're never going to make it out of the, you're never going to make it out of the door without, um, without having functional repair machinery. But on the flip side, I love that you brought up the therapies that we think about for cancer patients where we also want to ensure that they work and necessitating robust cancer therapies would be cancer cells that eventually succumb to the damage caused by, as you mentioned, potentially chemotherapy and radiation. So what an interesting balance. And as you said, the only way to know that is to really understand That's how right. these processes work. That's right. All right. So with that in mind, you've, 
you you have us all kind of on the edge of our seat because <laughs> far as I know, we're all going to keep breathing today, hopefully. <laughs> so what are you most excited about right now? So uh, I, I'm trying to, to, to put this into context. And so we, we're very interested in studying genetic variants that are in human beings that they're born with. They're called germline variants that are in DNA repair genes. And, and what they do is they generally make DNA repair, uh, they generally change the nature of it. And sometimes they change it so the cells can't repair. Sometimes they make repair ro more robust, whatever. So they change the nature of repair. And so we're very interested in studying them. And we've studied them for quite some time. And our findings suggest that uh, a person born with specific DNA repair genetic variants could be more at risk for developing cancer. So to ask that question, we made a mouse model of a DNA repair variant, and we thought that the mouse would develop cancer. And we waited a long time for these mice to develop cancer, but instead they developed autoimmunity. So if we understand how we can compromise DNA repair in a tumor, we might be able to make that tumor uh, more available to killing using immunotherapy drugs, more available to treatment by immunotherapy drugs. Now, this is really expanded in that I was, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, be awarded an R35 grant to study this from the from the NIH, and so we're we're collaborating uh, with geneticists to look at, uh, for for genetic variants in people who suffer from autoimmune disease, and lo and behold, we're finding several genetic variants in DNA repair genes in these individuals. So that says that there's definitely a link between abnormal DNA repair and autoimmunity. And if you think about it, what immune therapy is, is when you give these immunotherapy drugs to patients, they bring the immune system into the tumor to kill it. And so studying autoimmunity and DNA repair is a way of studying immunotherapy and making it better. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Um, one of the things that I think is so incredible about the immune system when we think about cancer and autoimmune diseases is that they are just really opposite sides of a coin, right? If we, right. If we kind of establish this baseline belief that the goal or the function of the immune system is to recognize, I mean, you could call it non-self. So things that aren't, aren't us, we would say that maybe cancer could be categorized as a failure of the immune system to recognize non-self. And so this is a broad generalization, of course, but then that in that same kind of other side of the coin picture, if cancer is a failure of the immune system to recognize non-self, autoimmune disease would be an overreaction of the immune system to self. Um, so exactly. they've got to be related. Yeah, so, oh my gosh, what, what that's really exciting. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, we're we're very, you know, we were so excited. One of the things we're 
hopefully we're going to get to talk a little bit about Evelyn Whitkin, my, my, my PhD thesis mentor. But one of the things she taught me was that when you disprove your hypothesis and you have this amazing surprise that it's really important to follow it. Mm, absolutely. Let, actually, let's pivot and let's talk a little bit about Dr. Wiccan. I'd, I'd really love to hear from you about challenges that are facing scientists that have probably been brought into, I think, a really sharp focus by the pandemic. And I'd especially like to talk about women in science. So <laughs> you had this incredible experience and what I imagine must have been incredible privilege of training with, I think, what can only be described or who can only be described as the great Dr. Evelyn Whitkin. And she was actually, you may not know this. She was one of the very, I think she was actually the first woman to be funded um, by the American Cancer Society, um, which is really such an honor for us. So can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Whitkin and maybe some of your experiences training as a doctoral student in her lab? She's just, she's one of the smartest and most deeply caring individuals I've met, I've, I've really ever met. Uh, she, I was, I was so fortunate because I shared a bench with her in the lab. So, so she worked every day in the lab and she was always excited to come in and see what the results of her experiments were. And uh, we, we got to have incredible conversations in the lab. Uh, she taught me how to think and she taught me how to ask important questions. Um, and when, you know, what was, what was really important to me is, you know, science can very often be a black box and sometimes you get stuck. And during the times I was stuck, she would always say to me, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. She had full confidence in, in my abilities. And I think that's so incredibly important when you're training as a student. Uh, she continued to support my career. She's uh, she's uh, she's been my mentor, you know, throughout my my scientific career. Uh, she has an amazing passion for science and just this immense intellect. I I just was, as you say, it was such a privilege to be her student. What a wonderful experience that! Oh, if only we could all have. <laughs> A, That's right. Right. Someone who says, don't worry about it. it it's going to be okay. You're, you're on the right path. Just keep doing what you're doing. What a, oh, what a fantastic motivating method message for all of us. Um, and that she helped you to have confidence in your abilities. And I think all of us along that career path and training and science, you're right. It can be such a black box of, <laughs> and in that box, along with failed experiments is, you know, a lot of insecurities around, am I doing the right thing and am I good enough? And so, ah, wonderful. I'm glad that, really glad you had that opportunity. Oh, so am I. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about comes from some data that certainly I know you've read and that I've spent a lot of time this year reading about the impact of the COVID pandemic on scientists. Um, and especially women. So I will share with you that the American Cancer Society, we recently surveyed a cohort of our funded researchers, and this statistic absolutely blew me away. 92% of our respondents reported a decrease in their productivity and an increase in their caregiving responsibilities. Is 
I'd love to know, is this something that resonates with you? Have you heard similar challenges from your faculty? And, and maybe if so, what are you in the Cancer Center doing to help? Right. So I've heard this, you know, it's especially true for, for faculty who are caregivers. And that could be faculty who uh, are caring for children or other family members. You know, almost everyone's been affected by COVID if they haven't had COVID themselves, they know of someone in their family who has. And, you know, it's it's just, it's it's been a very difficult time. So I'm not at all surprised uh, by this uh, statistic of 92% of people saying that their productivity has gone down. It, it can be very, very discouraging. And, you know, the responsibility of, you know, myself, you know, in the leadership, cancer center directors, others, is to really help others uh, and to be sensitive and to provide flexibility and support as much as possible, encourage people to have that balance of work life. And, you know, just like we, I, I just spoke about uh, Evelyn, tell, you know, having full confidence in me, you know, really leaders uh, like myself, we, we should just continue to, to demonstrate our confidence in our trainees and in, in staff members and in leadership at our centers and, and encourage people to just to, to, to know that we, we believe in them and that we'll get through this together. I really love that. And it's such a positive message and it's so true. This, even though in the moment it can seem like this will last forever, we will move through, we are moving through and the scientific career can be so challenging, and I, th I think having leaders who are flexible and supportive and understanding is absolutely critical. One of the um, individuals who answered the survey shared this, and th this really touched me, so I'd like to share it with you and then just get your thoughts, not only on what institutions can do to help folks like this, but what can we do? What can funders do? So here's the Here's what this individual shared. At least once a week, I think about quitting my job at, in science to focus on my family. I then pull myself up and focused on the most critical task, all the while trying to be the emotional one of the lab. I'm failing on both sides, uncertain how long I can keep going. I'm sound and stable. It's just extraordinarily difficult to have this career alongside small children at this time. Further, the stress of the pandemic has brought out sexist behavior and actions I haven't seen in a while and make it harder to say, yes, this is worth it. So that really resonated with me. And I, I just, since I have your ear, I'd love to know what can institutions do first to better support, um, this did happen to be a woman, so women in science, and what do you think we can do? What can funders do? So, so first, I'd just like to say that the American Cancer Society, a while back, made a great decision to support junior faculty, and that's just so important, and I just wanted you to know that. Um, but, I, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all, so I think mentorship is really, really critical, making sure uh, institutions should make sure that faculty have mentors, leaders like myself should make sure that faculty have mentors, and you know, there are several different types of mentors, a scientific mentor, a personal mentor. If a mentor isn't working, uh, find another one and continue to find these mentors throughout throughout uh, your career. It's 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 really very important. 
know, I also think cluster hires are important. There's data from the National Academy of Sciences that say that women uh, and uh, individuals who, uh, you know, are, you know, from different backgrounds, uh, uh, in our case, you know, in, in our cancer center, uh, Hispanics, American Indians, African Americans, et cetera, can suffer stereotype threat and the imposter syndrome uh, because, you know, there's there's just not a critical mass of people. There's not a critical mass of women at the institution. And so it's really important to make sure there's a critical mass. So leaders should should really uh, think about when they hire to hire a group of people, uh, you know, a group of women, for example, uh, or when when we're doing searches, make sure that we're looking at everyone. Uh, you know, diversity is just incredibly important. There are challenges ahead of us. There are always challenges in science and we need a diverse workforce to solve them that we know that that's the best way. Um, in terms of funders, I think part of it is to hold institutions accountable for benchmarking progress in these areas. And institutions now are beginning, you know, the NIH is beginning to fund cluster hires. So I think that's really, uh, really critically important. Oh, you're right. I think it's really hard to be the only person in the room or at the institution or in the department who looks like you. So what a phenomenally simple but impactful idea to keep that from happening from the outset, right? To hire right. multiple people who look like each other so that they can have a louder voice in unison than, than any can have alone. So I commend you for that. And I, I appreciate your noting that the American Cancer Society supports early stage investigators. We we feel that's a critical part of our mission and a a group of scientists who we want to help pivot to that next stage of success. So I think together we can do some really wonderful things. I really liked one of the things that you mentioned, which I think maybe some of our audience members might not appreciate, and that is that finding mentors is so critical. One of the one yes. of the things that I was thinking, yeah, is that science is is very much a career based on apprenticeship, right? You learn at the helm of someone else. And what a what a lovely visual image that was for me, thinking about you working beside your your mentor, Dr. Witkin. So is there just kind of, you've had such an incredibly successful and continue to have such an incredibly successful career. You're such a role model. I'd love to hear if you in general have advice for women in science. Yes, I, I, think, I think it's really important to find good mentors and reach out for help and stay in touch with your mentors. I also think that it's just so important to continue to move forward at all times. And the way I do that is I do what gives me joy. And I encourage uh, women in science to do that. And for me, that's science. I just continue to move forward. I also take time out for myself and my family. Uh, I focus on my research. And I build good collaborations within the institution and beyond. And so if my current situation, my current environment isn't supportive, as supportive as I would like it to be, for whatever I, I I really think that it's incumbent upon me to make my situation better. And so all, these are all of the tricks that I use. I 
I, I balance myself through working with others. I balance my work and I, I just, I, I love to move forward with really, really good collaborators. That's great advice. I wish I had known you a few years ago. I think one of the challenges I've had in my own career is realizing that just because I'm good at something doesn't mean that I have to do it. I, I've been trying as I've developed my career to lean towards things that I'm good at, but that also bring me joy. And that was a really important lesson for me to learn and didn't have to be as hard as it was. So I really appreciate your sharing that we have choices and we're the ones that can make those choices happen by surrounding ourselves with opportunity. So that's great advice. One of the things that we've talked a little bit about is ACS funding, and I'd be really interested to know, are there ways that funding by the American Cancer Society um, has impacted your career? Absolutely. Uh, The funding by the American Cancer Society has, you know, jump-started my career. I I got one one of my first grants was from the American Cancer Society. And I got such incredible feedback on that grant, uh, which was so, it was just so useful to me. So I learned that I could get a grant and I, 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 the feedback uh, just really sort of changed a little bit the direction of my research. I was a, uh, a junior faculty research scholar. I forget exactly what the title was. And, and that uh, also uh, had a, an incredible impact on me. It not only funded more research, but it really was part of my tenure portfolio uh, at Yale University School of Medicine, which was so important for me. I just like to add, it wasn't only the funding. The American Cancer Society also asked me to become a reviewer. And the way that grants are reviewed uh, at the ACS is constructive. And so the whole idea is to give important feedback to really uh, assist and support the investigator in their research, because after all, these are more junior faculty, early stage investigators. And so the American Cancer Society, through these reviewer teams, helped me to become a better mentor to my students. And that's really important. That's fantastic to hear. You're right. We, We always have more truly outstanding grants or applications that, that are submitted, then we can fund. And our, our goal through our, I would say, just top-tier peer reviewers, we are grateful to them and indebted to them. Our goal is that even if we can't fund that particular application, that the science and the scientist improves. Um, we ask a lot of our reviewers, and they give an enormous amount of time and effort, but it's another example of that apprenticeship program by which science grows that inevitably somebody did that for us, right? When we were submitting our grants, um, someone provided hopefully good comments and helped us to grow. And we in turn ask our reviewers to pay it forward by doing it for others. So thank you. That's really wonderful that you were a reviewer and had a great experience and that it impacted your lab. That's fantastic. It was wonderful. All right, Joanne, my last question for you is probably the most important one that I have because many of our listeners are cancer patients and caregivers and survivors themselves. Um, As we close out, is there a message you would like to share with these listeners in particular? I think that one of the most important messages I can share is to go for 
cancer screenings. We know right now that many individuals are postponing cancer screenings due to COVID. We also know that medical centers are safe places. They're taking care to be incredibly safe. So screenings should be done because if cancers are found early on, they can be treated quite successfully. But if we delay screening, the problem can be that a cancer may be discovered in an advanced stage and it becomes harder to treat. So the other thing I'd like to say is if you are diagnosed with cancer, you should consider being treated at an NCI-designated cancer center where the treatment is it's conducted by what's called a multidisciplinary team. So lots of people get together to discuss your case and come up as a team with the best course of treatment. And research has shown that treatment at NCI-designated cancer centers provides the best outcomes for patients and also survivors. And they also educate caregivers. So it's just a fantastic environment if you're affected by cancer. What a great message and, and one that the American Cancer Society 100% agrees with you that we have been, or I should say I have been startled by the impact that the pandemic has had on cancer screenings. And we, we know we face an unknown impact of that, those delays in cancer screenings, and we are encouraging a rapid return to getting those screenings and understanding that though hospitals look a little different now, you're exactly right. They are safe places. And we really want to encourage folks to get screened so that we can catch any cancers early. Um, This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for sharing your approach to this really fabulous position, your research, your thoughts on mentoring. The, um, The citizens of Arizona are so lucky to have you and we're lucky you shared some time with us. So thank you, Joanne. Thank you so much. It's been delightful.